I am so glad that you are here this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you, and if you would, take it out, turn it on, um, join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and also when you came in, hopefully you got a bulletin or a worship guide. On the back of that, there'll be some notes that if you want to follow along as we study God's Word together, you are more than welcome to do so. I think some of the, the notes will be behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along and keep up. But 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to continue as we've been walking through this letter to that early church, what is modern day Turkey, Peter, one of the apostles, one of the right hand guys of Jesus Christ, wrote this letter to a whole group of apostles or a whole group of, of early Christians. Some were Gentiles, some were Hellenistic, and that is Jews that spoke Greek. Some of them were, uh, very few of them were Jewish, but he's writing this to a, a very young church population, a very young church, and is encouraging them, telling them, instructing them how it is that they live faithfully before Christ in the midst of a pagan world. In the midst of a world that is consumed with sin, in the midst of a world that is given over to all sorts of different vices and behaviors and pleasures, in a world that is consumed with their self-love and consumed with their own identities and consumed with the promises and the pleasures of the world. And he's writing to them, telling them, this is how you live faithfully before God. And so he's been talking about, up until this point, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, he's been talking about the difference and what makes us different as the people of God. What makes us different as people of Christ and what makes us different, he, he lines it out. That our, the main difference is, is our identity in Christ. Now I told you before in previous weeks, if you're lost and you're here this morning, I'm glad that you're here. I want you to be here and I hope that while you're here this morning, you hear what it means to be lost, what it means to be saved, and you are given a very clear understanding of how it is that you can move from being lost to saved. But as Peter is writing this letter, he is not writing it to the lost person. He is writing it to the saved person. So by and large, the audience that Peter has in mind is the saved individual. He is writing to the saved person. He is writing to the church. So if you're here this morning and you're lost, I don't want to give you a false sense of confirmation. I don't want to give you a false sense of confidence or hope. I want you to hear that this is what sets Christians apart from the world. So if you're here and you're lost, this gives you an idea of what it means to be a Christian. And if you are a Christian and you're here this morning, my question for you then is, is this true about us? Is this true about you? Is there a difference in your life because of what Christ is doing in you? We have far too many people in the society and the culture today that claim the identity of Christ and they claim a fellowship with other believers and yet when you look at their day-to-day -day life, there is no difference in what they say, what they do, with the priorities and pleasures in life of that of the world. And so Peter is writing to say there should be a difference. So if you're in the room this morning and you're lost, this is what it means to be a Christian. If you're in this room, room this morning and you're saved, this is what it means to be a Christian. But before we get to that, 20 years ago, most of the homes that you would thought of or you would have been in would have a medicine cabinet. Years before you had telemedicine, before you had WebMD, before everybody could self-diagnose themselves, that somebody got sick or somebody took to sickness, uh, usually the mother or the grandmother had a wide variety of home remedy measures. Back before homeopathy was a thing and before essential oils was really into the rage, but this idea that you would go and grandma or mama had the cure for you. And so if you had an upset stomach or if you had a little problem with your digestive system, grandma would bring you in there and she had this pink bottle called Pepto 
Bismol. And back in the days, it only came in one variety. Nowadays, they've got rapid gels, they've got tablets, they've got different flavors, they have different ways to administer. But back in the days, it was one bottle, one cup, one pink, one taste, one nastiness. And grandma would bring you in there and she would pour that cup of that pink. And she would hand it to you and just smile at you because she knew what you were getting ready to endure. And she, I think she took a little bit of pleasure in knowing this is what you're going to have to do. And so she'd give it to you and she would smile. She said she's doing it because she's trying to encourage you. I think that she was taking pleasure out of watching me be in suffering. But she would hand that to you and you would take it. And you, you took the Pepto-Bismol because you knew that it would work. And you knew how it would work. And you knew that if you didn't take it, it wasn't going to work. And you knew that unless you took it, you wouldn't start to feel better. You knew that the Pepto-Bismol was the medicine that you needed, even though you didn't like it. You knew that it wouldn't work unless you took it. And you knew that it wouldn't work until you took it. And the other thing that you were reminded of on a continual basis is if you took it or didn't take it, it was not going to nullify the effectiveness of the Pepto-Bismol. See, the, the working of the Pepto-Bismol, the efficacy of the Pepto-Bismol was not dependent upon whether you took it or not. If it stayed in that bottle, it was still going to help with indigestion whether you took it or not. Sometimes God's Word is that spiritual medicine in our lives. Sometimes God's Word is that spiritual medicine and it gives us direction, it gives us boundaries. God's Word comes in and it corrects and, and equips us for the life ahead of, ahead of us. And its authority and truthfulness is not defined by our opinion or our submission to it. And, and this text this morning we're going to get to here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is one of these texts. It's true whether we agree with it or not. It's true whether we like it or not. It's true whether it's popular or not. And it's true whether it is in vogue or not. It is still true. Some people will come to this text here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and they will say, oh, no, no, no. See, this text, it's archaic or it's divisive or they just dismiss it altogether. But I want to submit to you this morning that this text here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is not only instructive, it's supportive, and it's also convicting. It reminds us of what it means to be a Christian. So you used to take that medicine, that Pepto-Bismol, because you knew you needed the corrective effect of the medicine. And sometimes, church, we need to come to God's Word and not impute our opinions upon God's Word, but let God's Word wash over our opinions of this world. So notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 down through verse 7, and then we're going to step back. And what we're going to do this morning, it may be a little different than what we've done in the past, we're going to look at two broad views that Peter kind of looks at from a 30,000 foot view. That's the, that, that's the first and the last kind of thing, the truth I want to give you. And then the two middle ones are going to deal directly and more focused in when it comes to the man and the woman. And so we're going to look at some broad, and then we're going to look at some focus. But uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, and this is what Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, likewise, so he's connecting this to the first two chapters of 1 Peter, talking about that difference in the Christian life and talking about the difference that Christian life should live. But he, in the first two chapters, he's talking to them more specifically to the person, and now he's going to pan back and talk to them more as a congregation and more as a group. So he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden. Pers- be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. When we come to this text, when we come to this passage, I first want to start off with a broad view. I first want to start off with what Peter is trying to address and and looking at this text in a whole. And the first thing that I want you to see is Peter reminds us that it begins in the home. He's talking about this difference when it comes to our Christian life. He's talking about this difference that the world should see in us as believers in Jesus Christ. And I submit to you this morning that he reminds us that this whole different picture when it comes to the world in which we're living in, it begins in the home. There's a lot of things that we may say begin in the marketplace or they begin in the scientific lab or they begin on the athletic field or they begin in the mind of a person but Peter wants to remind us that this whole difference when it comes to people living differently for God it begins in the home. Why? Because God has a plan for the home. Consider just Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, Genesis 1 through 3 all remind us that when God created this earth and when God created man and woman and God brought man and woman together in marriage and holy matrimony, then God had a plan for how that marriage would then create a home. That that marriage would then build a home. And so God has a plan for the home, but yet what Peter understands and what we too often ignore is that the home is constantly under attack. So when Peter is writing this, he's writing this to a group of individuals because he knows that whether you're in the first century or whether you're in the 21st century, he knows that your home is under attack. It doesn't matter to me whether you're an empty nester or a middle nester or a beginning nester, whether you're married or you're unmarried or whether you have kids or you don't have kids. It doesn't matter what season of your life you're in. I'm going to tell you that if you live in a home, that home is under attack. How do I know that it's under attack? Because Satan is always looking for ways to plant and fracture the home. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Who did Satan attack? He didn't attack the oak tree. He didn't attack the perch in the water. He didn't go to the orangutans. He didn't go to the toucans. He didn't go to the elephants. He didn't, he, he didn't go to anybody else. He went to the man and the woman. He went to the marriage. He went to the home. And he began his attack right there in the home. So when Peter comes in, Peter understands what is at stake. He understands that he is talking to the home. When he's talking to the husband and wife, by extension, by implication, he is talking to the home. And he understands this home is under attack. You may say, well, how is it under attack in today's world, Spence? I'm going to tell you one of the main ways that I am convicted that Satan is attacking the home is through the screen. Through the screen. 
What kind of screen are you talking about? I'm talking about a screen. It may be a TV screen. It may be a tablet screen. It may be a computer screen. It may be a phone screen. It can be any kind of screen. But Satan is using those, by and large, to attack our homes. How do you know that? Because that whole screen, the whole purpose of that screen is there to grab your attention, to capture your focus, and you are drawn in. And parent, you can reason, you can, you can echo this. We do not control the communication that comes to that screen. Because whatever comes to that screen, we have no control over. Oh, we can control how often they're in front of the screen. We can control what exactly they watch on the screen. But parents, we are extremely naive to the attacks of Satan to implant subliminal messages and subliminal ideas through the screens we have in our home. Many of you know I'm driving a school bus route on the morning time. Dan's driving in the afternoons. I'm driving it in the mornings. called the First Baptist Route. And in the morning, I, there's a three elementary kids that I pick up. It's still dark at the time that I pick them up. And the other morning, I, I stopped there in front of their house and I, and I stopped the bus and here they came. And they were running and they jumped on the bus in, a, in an unusual fashion. And I, and I asked them, I said, what in the world's going on? And they said, well, we were a little bit scared this morning. I said, well, how comes that? And they said, well, because last night we watched the movie It. Now, I've never seen the movie, so please, please, uh, please, please forgive me if I mischaracterize. And if you've watched it, shame on you and you need to repent. But the way that I understand the movie, the movie is all about a clown and a red balloon trying to abuse and misuse children. Now, granted in mind, these three individuals are elementary age children. They, they all get off at elementary school. And I said, where in the world did you watch that at? And they said, we watched it with our parents. Not too many miles down the road, I pick up another young man. It's pre-kindergarten. He gets on the bus, and he's flipping up all the students. He's flipping them off. And I grabbed a hold of him by the wrist, and I grabbed that middle finger, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm flipping them off. I said, where'd you get, where'd you learn that from? My daddy. Make no mistake, church. Our homes are under attack. So Peter comes in to this text. He's coming in to this picture. And he is coming in from the standpoint that he understands that it begins in the home. And when we come in to understanding what this means to live differently in the world, to live different as Christians, then we as men, as women, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, we as individuals need to understand that it begins in the home. So Peter then draws in and he talks about the two primary figures in the home. He talks firstly to the women. That's why he says, likewise wives. And then he goes on, and we're just going to paraphrase, because I would love to just skip this and get down down to verse 7 where the stuff I like to dwell in. But the first six verses, he's going to talk to the women. He's going to talk about the women. Now some people have asked the question, well why did Peter take six verses to talk to the women and only one verse to talk to the guys? Well, you know that sometimes it takes more words for women to communicate than it does for us guys. I can say about 20 different things by just one word, okay. <laughs> and it drives Jaylene Batty. I can sit there and it depends on my body language, it depends on my tone, it depends on my pitch, depends on my cadence, depends on the mood, depends on the attitude. I can say okay in about 40 different languages. <laughs> and it drives her nuts. But, but when you think about women, obviously women use a lot more words than men say. But Peter gets in there and he talks about some qualities. He talks about some characteristics of women. 
And notice first he talks about their conduct. There in verse 1, he talks about being one without a word by the conduct of their wives. He is talking about the conduct of the woman. He, he is reminding us that this different in the Christian home, it is modeled by the wife. It's, it's modeled by the woman in the home. So he talks about the conduct. Be subject to your own husbands. Why? So they may be one by, without a word by the conduct of their wives. That conduct simply means a manner of life. So he's referring to the manner of the life of the woman in the home and saying that there will be some people that will see her manner of life in the home and just simply by her conduct it will ring and it will communicate a greater testimony than her servants in the church ever could. Her attitude, her behavior, as David was talking about this morning in Sunday school, her long suffering, her patience, her kindness, Sometimes her conduct is a greater testimony of the mercy and forgiveness of God in her life than her mouth could ever be. So he talks about her conduct and he says that when the wife models this difference in the home, it's not so that she can be a doormat. It's not so that she can be less sin. She is modeling a difference that God has made in her. She's modeling in her godly conduct. And not just that, but she's also modeling in her faithful spirit. Verse 3 and verse 4 talk about her faithful spirit. And in the way that Peter addresses it, he talks about the inward versus the outward. So he talks about in that context in that society, there were some women that were all concerned about the external and giving no attention to the internal. We've seen those people before. And they're all worried about how they're looking. They're all worried about how they're dressed. They're all worried about what, they're, what, what kind of designer clothes they're wearing. They're all worried about what people think of their outwardness. But inside they are corrupt and inside they are dirty. And so he tells them that the modeling of the wife is not just a godly conduct but a faithful spirit. In fact he says right there at the last part of verse 4. Notice what he says. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, which in God's sight is very precious. I take Peter to be reminding all of us that, you know what, men, it's not what's on the outside that's important. And you know what, ladies, it's not what's on the outside that's important. God is looking at your heart. God is looking at your spirit. Spirit is simply a word that talks about the disposition of a person's heart. He is saying this difference when it comes to Christ, this difference when it comes to our identity in Christ, that it is modeled in the wife. It is evident in the way the wife not only lives in the home, it's evident in the way the wife carries herself not only in the home, but in public. It's evident in what she prioritizes. It's evident in what she values. It's evident in her appearance. It's evident in her attitude. It's evident in her speech. It's evident in all the things about her. She has this godly conduct and she has this faithful spirit. Why? Well, you get down to verse 5 and verse 6. It's because she has this heavenly hope. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, notice how verse 5 begins. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. He, he was reminding them that the reason why they do all of this is because they know where their salvation is secured at. They know who ultimately they're serving. They know who they will ultimately answer to. They have a different attitude. They have a different conduct. They have a different personality. They have a diff different disposition. They have a different spirit. They have a different appearance. They have different values. They have different priorities. Not because it's popular. Not because it's in vogue. Not because it's what's on the cover of the magazines. It's because it is what is pleasing to God. And we are in a, and we are in a day and age when everybody is out to please themselves. 
Men do it. Women do it. We all do it. Everybody is all about what makes me happy. And if it doesn't make me happy, then I don't do it. Or if it doesn't make me happy, then I resist against it. If it doesn't make me happy, then I find ways, passive aggressiveness, to manipulate and to malign until I get what I want. Peter comes in and says, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when wives forget that what they model in the home is a representation of what God they serve. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we get in the attitude that it really doesn't matter what goes on in the home. Only matters is what goes on when people get out of the home. But may I remind you that our children are watching us in the home. And they're paying attention more to us in the home than they are in the public. And we have far too many parents that are living a hypocritical, duplicit life and they're looking like one way in the home and they're looking like another way in the church and then when the children get old enough and they leave the home, we wonder why they have left the church and it was because they saw their parents leave the church spiritually years ago. So now they get to the age and they say, why do I keep why do I keep putting on this charade? Why do I keep up this charade? I'm going to leave too. And brothers and sisters, it starts in the home. And it begins with wives modeling a Christ-like character in the home. Now the last part of verse 6, it says, If you do good, and this is the translation I'm looking at, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. That might be a little confusing. And there have been a lot of ink spilled on papers trying to explain what Paul is getting there. And many of your translations, whether you have a King James, a New King James, a New Living, a Holman Christian, a message paraphrase, a lot of your translations are going to say a wide variety of things. But I like it how the message paraphrase that they talked about the woman that she was unanxious and unintimidated. It's the idea that she didn't have confidence because of her appearance. She didn't have confidence because of her money. She didn't have confidence because of her prosperity. She did not have confidence because of her materialism. She had confidence because she knew who she was in Christ. She knew who she was in the eyes of God. So Peter talks about how this difference, this difference in the home, how it is modeled by the wife. But then in verse 7, he turns, men, pull your feet in. He turns and he says that it is practiced by the husband. So not only is it modeled, this difference that Christ brings in us, not only is it modeled in, modeled by the wife, but it's practiced by the husband. So he uses one verse and he packs it full of application and conviction for us men. Because he says, likewise, so he's connected it back. Husbands, live with your wife in a domineering way. No? No? He doesn't say that. <laughs> doesn't say that. Okay, okay, let, let, let's try this again. Uh, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in a dictatorial way. No, 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 he doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe let's try this one. Husbands, live with your wives in a, uh, a spoiled way. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says understanding. And you may look at it and go, well, you know what, Spence? That's just a lost cause. The idea that I'm going to understand her in this lifetime is not something that is realistic. We just need to move on. I assure you that we as husbands are never going to fully understand our wives, okay? 
But you know, he doesn't call us to fully understand our wives. Did you, did you pick that up there in the text? He said, live with your wives. He doesn't say, understand fully your wives. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. So he is not calling and he is not challenging us to fully, exhaustively understand our wives. But he is telling us that when we live with our wives, it should be done so in an understanding way. I was listening to Johnny Hunt um, just a few days ago and he made a statement. He's talking about deacon ministry, but I think it applies here. He said, so many times we misunderstand our position because we don't fully grasp our mission. And that's a paraphrase. That's not a verbatim what he said, but, 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 I, but I heard that and I thought, how true is that of men and especially husbands in the home? We lose sight of our mission because we're so consumed with our position. And when we lose sight of our mission, then we misunderstand our position. And we have too many men in the home today that think that their position is boss. Bible doesn't tell men that their position is boss. The Bible tells men that their position is to lead in the home. And your leadership in the home will be reflective of God's leadership in your life. So he tells us to live in an understanding way, which means that, which means that, that we need to understand that God has given us husbands, that God has given us men, he has given us responsibility, and he has given us a mission in the home. And that mission is, is to lead our wives, to lead our families as Christ leads us. But there's a great misunderstanding in the world. Because we have too many men that think that this is a call to passivity. That this is a call to apathy. That this is a call to absence. That this is a call to abdication of our responsibilities. Or this is an excuse for laziness. So those men that come home and that think my job is done. I went to work so now I get to come home. And she has to do everything else because I'm the head of my household. You are a fraud. Because church he tells us to live in an understanding way. What do you mean an understanding way, Spence? That I understand that I am here to serve my family. I am here to lead well. I am here to sacrificially serve the home in which God has placed me. And I come in understanding that my mission and my position is not to be a despot, but my mission and my position is to lead them to serve God. So that's why he says to live with your wives in an understanding way. I so much wish he would flip that around and say wives understand your husband. You don't have to agree with me men. That's cool. I'll stand up here and take the heat by myself. I just wish, I just wish that there was some type of reversal. But Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say it's her job to understand him. He says that it's his job to understand her. And his job to understand his role in the home. It's his job to understand God's design, God's plan, and God's purpose for the home. It's his job to be at the front taking the bullets when the attacks of Satan are flying. It's his job. And not just that. It gets worse. To live with your wife, I'm back in verse 7, to live your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. He is reminding us that part of our job is to honor. Now this honor, it requires humility. It requires humility. How are you going to honor something if you're so prideful and arrogant that you don't think that something deserves of honor? And notice he goes on and he says, honor them as the weaker vessel. Notice he does not say the lesser vessel. He does not say less in value. He does not say less in, 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 in value or dignity in the eyes of God. He says the weaker vessel. 
we don't do it in our home because it's just a practice that hasn't gotten in vogue. But in some homes, they've got the regular standard plateware. You know the stuff that when it's just you at the house, you got your bowls and you got your plates and you got your cups and this is the stuff you normally use. But then if somebody's coming over, let's say the president decides he's going to show up and have supper at your house, you got this special dinnerware set. You got this special stuff over here. You got the special cups. You got the special plates. You got this, the special silverware. You got the, the fine china. You got, you got that set up to the side and that is set to the side for special occasions. And you come to that special occasion and you pull that stuff out and you have a great tenderness with it. You have a great reverence for it. You say, oh no, we can't hurt it. We, we can't damage it. it. It's of great value. It's of great worth. And you hold it up in a different light and you have a different way of treating it. Not because it's of lesser value, but because you have a greater priority of what it is. Sometimes it's because it's more fragile. I'm telling you that stuff that's plastic will not break and will not drop. It doesn't matter what you do. It's not going to go away. But yes, some of that stuff that fine china, you sit there and you look at it and say, I use this for special occasions. Not because it is of greater sturdiness. Not because that it is more used more often, but because I hold it up because of the value and the priority it is to me. Can we just say a couple of facts of life? God has made us different. Ma'am, God has made you different than him. Sir, God has made you different than her. There are differences that God has created us with and those differences are meant to complement one another. Those differences are meant to be used to glorify God together. But there are distinct differences that come into play. And so God recognizes that there are differences and so he looks at the man and says, you don't look down upon your wife and say, well, because you can't lift this and because you can't endure that and because you can't compartmentalize this and because you can't fall asleep in the recliner in five minutes and because you can't do this and you can't wear your underwear for five days in a row and because you can't do all that we don't look at them and say you're less than I know the underwear took a little far but you understand <laughs> you understand we came back from children's camp a few weeks ago or a few, few years ago and it got reported to mama that there was a boy or two that did not shower all week long and mama gave me that look like Woo! and I was like they're still alive they're, it's good it's good for their immune system he just move on Just because she's different doesn't mean she's less. So Peter wants to remind us that men, we have a responsibility in our homes to live in an understanding way, not domineering, to honor her. And that honor requires humility. But more so than that, notice at the last part of verse 7, he says, since they are heirs with you. I want to remind you of something this morning. She is a daughter of God. We were at the State Fair a couple weeks ago. Got us some food. We were going to sit down and at this picnic table there was an old buddy of mine that I hadn't seen in a lot of years. And I didn't realize he was sitting there. We sat down and realized who we were. And I'm sitting on this one little bench. And beside me there's a young man that is sitting there. And he has this young lady that is sitting on their lap. And they don't have enough room for Jesus. And they're just way too close. Looked like they're in high school. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, go away. Go away. So I'm having a conversation with an old friend of mine. And then it I come to the realization, that's his daughter. And that's his daughter's boyfriend. And I'm looking at this situation, I'm going, why are you sitting there and not beating him down for acting like this in public? And, and, and why, young man, do you feel like this is an appropriate conduct in public with her daddy sitting right there? 
And I really just want to look at the girl and say, you know what? If he's not going to have enough respect in front of your dad, he's not going to have enough respect without your dad. And we've got too many boys that can shave in this world that have forgotten that every single woman in the world is a daughter of God. And so husbands, when we get into that marriage situation, when we get into that home dynamic, when we get into that relational circumstance, we need to remember that she is a daughter of God. And I believe that when Peter comes into this story, he wants to remind not only that woman that you model this Christ-like attitude in your conduct in the home, but he also reminds men that you practice this Christ-like conduct in the home. And then you zoom back, you zoom back and say, okay, so Peter, what are you trying to get us to? Peter, what are you trying to show us? And I believe he's trying to remind us that it all comes back to the glory of God. It all brings glory to God. Why does it matter how women and men treat each other in the home? Why does it matter how men and women carry themselves in the home? Why does it matter how men and women conduct, act, behave in the home? Why does it matter? Why does the home matter so much? Because it brings glory to God. See, there are some things that are not, that are not explainable by science. There's some things that are not explainable in a DNA test. There are some things that are not explainable through the scientific method. There are some things that are only explainable through God's Word. Why do you have a man and a woman that come together for life? Because God's Word ordains it so. Why do you have men and women in the home with distinct roles and distinct purposes from God because God's word ordains to be so. Why do you have men and women coming together, serving one another, sacrificially serving one another, deferring to God's plan for the life more so than their plans for life because God's word ordains it so. It's not explainable by science and it's not popular culturally. But church, we have not been called to be popular. We have not been called to be trendy. We have not been called to be Contemporary. We have not been called to be progressive. We have called to live a faithful testimony. And this all is a testimony of our faithful obedience to God. That is why when you look at the home, there should be people on the outside of the home scratching their head and saying, I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. I don't understand why she acts the way she does when he is such a jerk. I don't understand why he does what he does. He deserves something different. I don't understand why this is going on. And both the husband and the wife are able to look at people and say, you know what, it's not because of me. It's because of Jesus in me. It's because of what Christ has done in me. And because of who I am in Christ. And it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Sometimes you'll hear the stories of some of those senior saints they'll share some story about how they've been married 50 or 60 years and people go oh wow that's so amazing it is amazing <laughs> but it's also a testimony of God's grace in their lives because I don't I've never been married 50 or 60 years I'm planning on it but I've never been married that long but I can tell you 16 years is impossible without God's grace in our lives I don't think five years was possible without God's grace in our lives and without Christ being the foundation or the center of your marriage, what else holds your marriage together? Without God being that priority and God being that focal point of your marriage, then what keeps it together when times are tough? I submit to you, the reason why we see divorce at 50% or greater, not outside the church, but also inside the church, is because we have so many marriages that are not focused and fixated upon God. 
They're not directed on God and they're directed on a lot of other things that aren't from God. Why do we see families and homes that are so fractured and so disjointed? Why do we see homes that aren't reflective of God? Because they have taken away the medicine, the spiritual medicine of God's word and they have switched it with the promises and the assumptions in the world. So how do we live as different make, difference makers? How do we take this text and look at it in the context of our daily lives? Well, three things and we'll be done. First of all, the culture knows the truth. I want to remind you this morning that the culture knows the truth. What do you mean the truth? The culture knows that God has created us and that God has created us distinctly with male and female. They know the, that God has created the home. He has created that dynamic of the home. Spence, how do you know that the culture knows this? Because they are in constant opposition and rebellion. If there wasn't truth and if there wasn't absolute truth and if there wasn't God's truth, then what are they fighting against? They're fighting against the authority of God in their lives. Why are they fighting against the authority of God in their lives? Because they don't like to have authority in their lives. Too bad. Some things are because they are. I exist because God ordained me to exist. And, and some of these things in this world, the culture knows the truth. That's why they are so adamant. And that's why they're so vehement in fighting against the truth. That is why they try to call it progressive. They try to call it new age. They try to call it contemporary. They're trying to break down these barriers. They're trying to redefine what God has so clearly defined. Because they know the truth. And they rebel against the authority of God's word. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is not a new thing. What happened when Satan fell? Satan fell because he rebelled against the authority of God. Why did Adam and Eve fall in the garden? Because they rebelled rebelled against the authority of God. From that point all to this point, man, humanity, has been continually rebelling against God. So it is no wonder why we have such gender confusion in this world today. And it stems from a rebellion to God. So not only did the culture know the truth, but our homes need to practice the truth. Our homes need to practice the truth. I have said it before that it is my opinion, my belief, that the home today is the church tomorrow. So you start looking around the context and the landscape of the home today, and you start to think, that is how it's going to be tomorrow in the church. And that can be frightening. The lack of morals. The lack of principles. The lack of faithfulness. The lack of consistency. The lack of devotion and commitment to God. Our homes need to practice the truth. And then finally the church must support the truth. The church must support the truth. Brothers and sisters, we come to a text like this. And I realize it's not popular. And I realize that many people would say, well, how dare you try to place standards or barriers? Or how dare you try to state, state uh, guardrails about different distinctions between sexuality and distinction between roles and, and characters in the home? How dare you try to say that there is something that sets us apart? I'm going to tell you that it's not me saying it. It is God's Word saying that. And if we come to God's Word and say, well, you know what? That's archaic or that is divisive or you know what? We just don't want to listen to that. Woe be us. One of the ways that we can live differently in this world is that we can live in faithful obedience to God's word. The stuff we like, the stuff we don't like, the stuff that's easy, the stuff that is hard. But may this world see a difference in us. So I come back where I started this. If you're here this morning and you're lost, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. Living differently. Because the call of God in our lives. Or if you're here this morning and you know that you're saved, are you living 
differently because of the call of God in your lives. You bow your heads with me.